This morning I want to speak about worshiping the Lord in spirit and truth, uh, kind of taken off from where we left last week. Last week we talked about worshiping God and, and how important it is to be the kind of worshiper that God is looking for. Because God is looking for a certain kind of worshiper. And uh, it's important that we worship God the way that he receives so that it's effective and so that it's meaningful to both us and to the Lord. Uh, John 4 was our scripture uh, text last week, and we're going to use that again this week. And that John 4, verses 23 and 24 says this, Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. You know, when the Lord gives us clear words like that, it just behooves us to follow them, doesn't it? Why would we want to do anything contrary to what the Lord tells us to do? When he comes and says, you must worship me a certain way, why would we want to worship him any other way? Why would we want to try to find a second way if God says, I'm going to give you the way to worship, and you're going to worship me in spirit and in truth? Let's just do it. <laughs> let's just be really smart people, and let's just take the simple way. And the simple way is doing what the Lord asks us to do. And this reference gives us good instruction as to what God is looking for when it comes to us honoring Him in the way that He so much deserves. God is the awesome power of the universe. There is nothing like God. There is, we sang about it, indescribable, uncontainable. There's nothing that can contain the power and the awesomeness of God. Nothing. So when he asks us to worship him a certain way, then it only makes sense for us to do that. Why would we want to try to confuse ourselves and try to make a better way when the Lord says, I have the way, and I'm telling you clearly what it is. You worship in spirit and in truth. And today I want to talk a little bit more about that. And as we come to the full understanding of what it really means for us to be in the family of Christ, that it gives us a freedom to live a life that is pleasing to this all-powerful master of the universe. He gives us a freedom that we can choose to honor God, not out of a sense of obligation, but out of a sense of true love and appreciation. And when we do that, when we can come to that understanding and we can grasp that in my heart and my life, then I'm free to worship the Lord. That's so awesome. So awesome that we just must need to worship the Lord and we must know how to do that. There's three things I want to get out of this statement today. I want to get, number one, I want to talk about the urgency of what it means to worship God in the way that we have while we have the chance. I want to talk about the urgency to be who God wants us to be while we're still, while we still have the chance. Number two, I want to talk about being the living sacrifice that is talked about in Scripture. Then number three, I want to talk about all that we do is for the glory of God so that others may be saved. And we can get all of that basically out of this Scripture as we talk about this. Number one, I want, to talk about, I want to talk about the next few minutes. I want to talk about the urgency to be who God wants us to be while we have the chance. And, and when I read this verse, it says, Yet a time is coming. And now has come when the true worshipers will worship the Spirit, the Father and Spirit in truth. And, and when I read that verse, when I read that, I can't help but, but see the sense of urgency 
that Jesus is talking about when he says that. Yet a time has come, and by the way, it's come now. Now is the time that we worship the Lord, our Father, in spirit and truth. And I know that we all have many things in our life that take up our time. We're very busy people. We have a lot of issues that come up in our life, and we have a lot of things that are very important to us. But we have to be careful that the important things in life don't become the priority things in life if God's not number one. God must be that number one priority in our life. And when I see Jesus talking about his sense of urgency, what I really like about this is that I never see a panic in Jesus. I never see him waiting to the last minute to get something done. I see urgency, but I don't see panic. There's a difference between urgency and panic. Urgency is, is a sense of preparation. You can prepare with an urgency to get something done. That is something that, that enables you to be effective in what you do. If you're in a panic, you're probably not very effective in your preparation because you're just trying to get it done and you don't care how good it's done. It's just got to get done and you get into a panic and you get into that, that, that mode of just getting something done right or wrong. I never saw that in Jesus. We always see Jesus with a sense of urgency because he knows that he has a lot to do in the short time that he has on this earth. And in all essence, folks, we do too. We have a lot to do in the short time that we have on this earth. Now, Jesus had 33 years, and most of us are close to that, if not beyond it. But yet we don't know really how much time we have left on this earth. So we have to work not in a panic, not in, oh, my gosh, it's falling apart all around us. Now we're going to in a panic mode, and we just start grasping for straws. We grasp for anything that comes along. That's not what I'm talking about, and that's not what the Scripture is talking about. But a sense of urgency is that I prepare myself through godly instruction. Yet a time has come, and it's now, that we worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. And that urgency says, capture the moment. Capture the moment. Don't let a moment go by when I'm not catching it, when I'm not urgently seeking the Lord. See, and the enemy is clear also about this because he doesn't want us to have that sense of urgency because if I have a sense of urgency then I am combating the enemy and I'm effective with that so he wants to give us an attitude of complacency the enemy wants to come in and say what's the rush you got time why do you why do you got to do it now put it off put it off till tomorrow especially young people why do I have to live a godly life when I'm only 18 years old or younger why i got all my life to do that. I'm going to go live my life right now, and I'm going to have fun. I'm going to sow my wild oats, and I'm going to do all the things that I want to do to give me immediate satisfaction. But why? But why? Because the devil's telling you. Now, let me tell you something else about the devil. He only speaks in lies. He will never, because he cannot, tell you the truth. He will tell you a partial truth, but he cannot tell the whole truth. So when he comes and brings you a sense of you have time, why the urgency, understand what he's trying to get you to do. He's, he's not trying to get you to pace your life so that you can make it to the end. 
He's not trying to say, hey, slow down here, marathon runner. You're going too fast up front. I'm, trying, I'm doing this for your own good. I'm doing this so you can finish the race. That's not why he's telling you to do that. If he's telling you to slow down, it's because he wants you to stop. And he wants you to give up. He doesn't want you to press in. He doesn't want you to have a sense of urgency. So when we hear the devil, when we hear that coming in our mind, why do I have to live the life of holiness today? Why can't I do it tomorrow? Because you don't have a promise of tomorrow. You don't know what tomorrow brings. You have the moment. And Jesus is saying, in the sense of urgency of the moment, don't miss the moment. Don't miss it. Don't miss that today is the day. Today is the day that I must worship the God in spirit and in truth. Because if I'm not living in truth, then I can't worship the Lord. If I'm not worshiping in spirit, then I can't worship the Father who is a spirit. So we have to make sure that we don't waste the time. The devil is a waster. He will waste everything he can about our life. But the Lord is a redeemer. There's a difference between a waster and a redeemer. What the enemy would waste, the Lord will come to redeem. And that's the beauty of living and serving God wholeheartedly is that he is redeeming the things that the enemy would take for our waste. And God is saying, no, I'm redeeming you. I'm redeeming you for the moment that you have the future. So the urgency is that we are to be doing the Father's work. Whatever that is that you're given to do, do it with all your heart. Do it in all truth and do it in all spirit. Number two, it brings us to being the living sacrifice that is talked about in Scripture. What's important for us to, stand, for under, to understand is this this morning, that... that we do because we are, not we are because we do. Let me say that again. That's really important. We do because we are, not we are because we do. And what that means is this, is that we do the things that God asks us to do because we are redeemed in Christ Jesus. We have traded our life of sin and death for a life of redemption. We've traded that life of waste for a life of redemption and eternal life. So we do these things for him as a result of the marvelous free gift that he gave us, which is the redemption of our soul or the forgiveness of our sins. And conversely, we are not this because we do things. That's a spirit. That's a, that's a, a salvation of works. We're not saved because of what we do. We're saved because we have a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And then once I have that saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, I do. So I do because I am. I don't, I'm not because I do. So just let's keep that in our mind. And yes, life is a, that life is a required life of obedience and sacrifice to God. There's no question about it. That's why we're talking about being a living sacrifice. But it's not to earn our eternal life. We live a life of obedience and sacrifice because we are free to live that kind of a life of obedience and sacrifice. And when we can grasp this concept the way the Holy Spirit wants us to grasp it, and not the distorted view of the enemy, then and only then can we really have and enjoy the freedoms of living in Christ. 
There's a lot of freedom in Christ. But our freedom must be the way that the Lord sees the freedom in Christ, not the way the enemy sees the freedom in Christ. And when I have that, when I can get that, when it, when it, when it clicks in my mind, when I have that revelation of what that freedom is, and I have that proper perspective, then I can do all things for Christ. And I keep that proper perspective. But if I don't keep that proper perspective, then I can do all the right things for the wrong reasons with a disastrous outcome. Because if I'm really working as my salvation is through my works, you're going to be disappointed come judgment day. You're going to be disappointed because if you don't have Jesus as the focal point, point of your life, if he's not the central theme of your life, no matter how good of a life that you live, when it comes time for God to say, what did you do with my son? You're going to say, who? And he's going to say, yeah, that guy. It's not about what you did. It's about who you are. It's about who you are in Christ Jesus. That's the, the significant thing that you're going to be measured upon. Who you are in Christ Jesus. Let's go back to some basic Christian theology this morning. And I know that we probably already know this, but it's wise that we are reminded every now and then what it is from our very beginning, the sinners that we are and the position that we've come from, and that we were not good enough, never will be good enough on our own to deserve heaven, but only through the shed blood of Christ. Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 12 it says this, What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles are alike under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Pretty hard words. The number skipped on to verses 19 through 21. Or 19 through 20. It says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. What that's saying is this. The Old Testament law will never save a person. But what it does do, it makes us aware of our sin. So the fact that we know that we need a Savior. If I don't know that I need a Savior, then I won't ask of a Savior. If I didn't have a problem in my body, if I didn't have a pain in my body, remember what pain is for. Pain is a telltale sign there's something wrong. If I didn't feel the pain then I wouldn't know there's something wrong with me. I wouldn't get the medication or I wouldn't ask for prayer. So the law is that pain. That law is that warning that says you have something you can't deal with, and that's sin. You can't deal with this on your own. You must come to Jesus. And he will take care of it. But the pain of the law is the consciousness of the law. And it tells us then that we have problems, that we have things we can't do on our own. So we have to know that we are a fallen nature. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. We will never be able to attain a saving knowledge of Jesus on our own. We must. The Holy Spirit must draw us. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. If we don't do anything besides just be a good person, then we have the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God, when we receive the gift of God, is eternal life. Paul says to the, to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 4, it says, Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. It's laid out. Um, in Sunday school class, we were talking about the gifts of the Spirit and knowledge, and my wife made the comment about we have all the tools. The Lord has given us all the tools to work with, but we must pick up the tools. We must pick them up. If I, wanted to be a, if I wanted to be a carpenter, I could go to Ron and say, Ron, I want to work for you. And Ron would give me all the tools. Give me a hammer, a belt that I could put on to be really cool. Those, I love those belts, those tool belts, man. They, they, you must feel so cool when you wear those, Ron. You know, you got the hammer and you got the screwdriver, you got your nail polish, you got all that stuff hanging there, and that's just so cool. And he's got the saws and everything. But if I never picked up the hammer out of my pouch... I wouldn't be much of a carpenter. And probably Ron wouldn't let me work with him very long. And even if I did pick up the hammer, he'd probably say, Mike, you're not much of a carpenter. <laughs> Why don't you go home? <laughs> because I'm not much of a carpenter. But I have to pick up the tools. If I'm going to be a toolmaker, I need to pick up the tools. And so uh, it is with our Christian life. God's given us all the tools. The Word is full of tools. But I must pick them up. I must read it. I must understand it. I must do my best to grasp it. And when we do our best to grasp it, he gives us the wisdom. He gives us the knowledge. He gives us the gift. He gives us the revelation of what that particular tool is for, what that particular gift is for. And as I start to use it and start to work with it, he gives me another gift to finish the job. And then somebody else comes along with their gift and their tool, and they say, hey, let me help you work on your life. And if I'm a, if I'm a smart man, I'll accept the help. If I'm a smart man, I'll say, yeah, I need some help in my life. Would you help me build it? And let them work and let them build and let them invest into my life as well. And that's the way Christian faith and unity should be all about. That we're not trying to build my own house, but we're asking for people to help me build my house, and then I'm going to go help them build their house. And then we build each other's structures. We build each other's uh, resting places where the Lord will then can work with us, and we build our lives together. That's unity. And finally, the final piece of our salvation is the action that we must put into it. Our faith must have action. Romans chapter 10, verse 13, it says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But you must call. 
We sang the song, Oh, how He loves us. Oh, how He loves us. And yes, He does love us. But we must reflect His love back with a call and say, Lord, I need Your love. All who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Amen. Thank you. It's just that easy. It's just that easy that we can move from recognizing our sinful position where we have a need of our Savior, where we know that we have it, where we need a Redeemer. We know that we're a waster, that we need to have a Redeemer of our life, that we call on the name of the Lord, and He saves us. All right, so now that we've gone through basic theology or Christianology 101, that now we've received Christ into our life, now what happens? Now what do we have to do? Now we, have, we are living now in a new freedom that we didn't have before. The way we were before, we, we, might thought, we might have thought we were happy then, but we didn't know what happiness was until you have clearly the forgiveness of Jesus in your life. And when you have that experience of salvation, now you're free. Before you were condemned to death, eternal death, but now we have an eternal life, and we have something to look forward to and to plan for. So how do we do it? How do we do it? And this is where that saying comes in again. We do because we are, not we are because we do. Because now that I have Christ in my life and I've received his fullness of salvation in my life, now my life can grow and live in that freedom day after day. And I don't have to be bogged down. We're no longer living for ourselves. Rather, we're living a life that revolves around Jesus as the center point. You know, when um, they were still trying to figure out if the earth was flat or round, they saw this big thing in the, in, the, in the universe, this thing called the sun. And, you know, from our observation our, on planet earth, if we didn't have the ability to know what we have today, we would think the sun revolves around us. Wouldn't that make sense to think we're sitting here on this earth and we're stationary and the sun is moving in the sky, so the sun is revolving around us. That's the way we are in our sin, that we think the world is revolving around us. But in all reality, the earth, the world that we live in, is revolving around the sun. The sun is stationary, and the earth is revolving around the sun. So when I have Jesus come into my heart for the first time, and I, re I recognize now that it's not all about me anymore. My universe isn't revolving around me. Rather, I need to be revolving around the sun of God. And when I can get that where I'm revolving around him, he becomes my center point. And the nice thing about a center point and a circle, no matter where you go, you're always the same distance away from it. You know, you don't get way out here. No, you're right in here. A circle means when you have a center point of the circle, you're always an equal distance around it, no matter where you're at in that circle, no matter where you're at in that life. And the beauty of it all is that as we are continuing to revolve around God, as we're continuing to evolve around Jesus, that he becomes our center point and we focus on him. No matter what's going on in my life, my focus is on Jesus. And that's where a lot of the people that first get saved, that's where they lose it. Because the devil comes in and steals that revelation. The devil comes in and says, no, it's really not about him. It's still about you. You need to know that. It's still about you. You still have to have pleasures. I mean, you still have rights. Come on, people. You have rights in this world. It's your right to do what you want to do. You're free to do whatever you want to do. It's your right to exercise it. See, that's where the subtleness of the devil's lies come in. Because the freedoms that you do have, they are your freedoms. 
Who's your center point? Who's the center of your life? Is it Jesus or is it you? If it's Jesus, it will give you a different perspective of your freedoms. If it's you, it will give you a different perspective of your freedoms. Who's the center point of your life? Paul talks to the Romans in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. It says, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. There is a lot to unpack in this few words here. There's a lot of truth here. There's a lot of freedom here. But when we recognize that our bodies, ourselves, we are a living sacrifice. Jesus is the center point, And everything I do needs to be revolving around him. And then as we do that, we're living holy and pleasing to God then this is our spiritual act of worship. We were told earlier that we worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. Well, how do we worship the Lord in spirit? We do it through our spiritual act of worship, our spiritual act of sacrifice. What is that? That is offering our bodies as living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. That's where we become the living sacrifice, which is our spiritual act of worship. God is spirit. I worship him in spirit. I do so because I'm living my life as a living sacrifice, meaning that God is my center point, meaning that I'm taking myself from the center and I'm removing myself and I'm putting myself here and I'm putting Jesus in the center. And when I do that, there may be some sacrifices to myself that I may have to give up in order to keep Jesus as the center. Therefore, a living sacrifice. And when I'm a living sacrifice, that is my spiritual act of worship. That's how I worship the Lord in spirit. Because I'm not putting myself as a center anymore. I'm putting Jesus. And I'm putting him there because I love him. Because of what he's done for me. Because of what we just talked about, of that salvation that he's done. And that worship and that, that, that beautiful sacrifice that he gave for us. And then we're living for the glory of God, not for the glory of me. Is there a difference between the glory of God and the glory of Mike? Certainly there is. I'm living for the glory of God. Just like we prayed for Amber today. We're praying, you know, I've, I've, Jenna mentioned this to me, and I, and I don't, because I don't see Amber racing a lot, but when Amber crosses the first, the finish line, first thing she does, because she's normally crossing it first, first thing she does is she raises her hand. Now, a lot of people would say it's because she's tired, but we know the difference. She's doing it because she's doing it for the glory of God. Amen. She's leading people to Christ through her act of being an obedient sacrifice. That's what it's all about, folks. That's it. That's the simplicity of what it is. We don't have to make it any more complicated than that. See, it's so neat that God ties our life together in a sense of holy purpose to bring glory to God as we are willing 
and urgently living a daily life of spiritual sacrifice. When I do that, then I'm worshiping God in spirit and in truth. We, we defined worship last week as to adore, to have great adoration, great devotion, to treat somebody or something as deity, loving somebody or something deeply. That's what worship is. Worship is not the singing that we did today. It's not singing. It's using singing to bring adoration. But we simply want to say the worship is the song. No, the song just points us to who we're adoring. That's Jesus. So our spiritual act of worship, then, is our life. It's our actions. It's what we do every day of the week. It's what we should be doing every day of the week. We should be offering ourselves as living sacrifices day after day after day. The difference between a dead sacrifice and a living sacrifice is that a dead sacrifice is offered one time. It's dead. When they sacrificed in the Old Testament, they slaughtered, they slaughtered the animals and they bled them out and they burned them. That sacrifice would never be a sacrifice again because it's dead. Now we, as living creatures that with Jesus in our heart, we're alive. And so we're to offer ourselves as living sacrifices day after day after day because we're alive and every day I bring a new sacrifice. Every day I bring a new form of worship. Every day I bring another part of my life to God and say, God, I'm giving more to you. I'm, I've tried to give it all. I don't know. Giving it all is, is an everyday thing. You don't give it all one time and then give it half the second day. No, you give it all every day. That's the living sacrifice. And when we do that, then we can, that's our spiritual act of worship. That is worshiping the God in spirit and in truth. And that brings me then to our final point today, and that, and that we do all of this for the glory of God so that others may be saved. The two purposes that we have to live in this world, number one is fellowship with the Lord. God made man for fellowship. God made man in his own image so that man in body, soul, and spirit could worship Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Okay? We're different than an animal because we talked about this last week. An animal doesn't have a spirit. Man has a spirit. That allows us to worship God in spirit. Our main focus, we're here for two reasons. Number one, to worship, to have fellowship. The second purpose is to win others so that they can also worship and have fellowship. I'm not, an, I'm not a man on an island. This isn't just about me. This is about that center point who is Jesus. And I'm trying to get as many people with me to follow that same center point as I can. That's my purpose. That's your purpose. That's why we can go out of this church into this community and live a life of integrity, live a life of truth, Live a life of wholesomeness, holiness, so that people say, what is different about you and what it is I want? And you say, come, I'll show you, it's Jesus. See, sheep make sheep. Shepherds don't make sheep. That wouldn't be a, wouldn't be a good combination. But sheep make sheep. So you go out into the world. And you become the sheep in the world. You become the lamb of the world. And you're living a life of a living sacrifice with your obvious point of center is Jesus. Believe me, you're going to create some attention. 
Because if Jesus is your center point, other people are going to see Jesus as your center point. And when you have that, people are going to say, what is that? I want it. See, you, you may not believe me right now. You, you may not think, no, that's not right. But you know where that's coming from? That's coming from the devil. I'll tell you that right now. The devil does not want you to believe that. The devil does not want you to believe that a man that lives a holy life is something that this world wants. But that is the absolute thing this world wants. This world is seeking for truth. It just doesn't know where to get it. It doesn't know where to find it. So if we are working in our, if we're working and walking in our daily lives at school or on the job or at home, if I'm working and walking in truth with the, with the center point of my life is Jesus, I'm going to be desirable by the world. Why do you think people like Jesus so much? Think about it. He walked with publicans and sinners and tax collectors, and they liked him. Who didn't like him were the Pharisees. Who didn't like him was the religious leaders of the day because they challenged the power they had. But the common man liked Jesus because Jesus reflected truth and integrity and an honesty, and they wanted to be like him. Even though they couldn't in their own self, they wanted to be. And that's just what's going to happen to people around you if you live a life of integrity and honesty and truth, uncompromised truth, people are going to say, I want it. I want that. But they're not going to know you have it unless you live it. <laughs> they're not going to know I have it because if I'm not living it, I don't have it. True? The only way that I can be that light of the world is to live it for the glory of God so that others may be saved. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 31-33 says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or, or, the, or the church of God, or the assemblies of God for that matter. <laughs> Even as I try to please everybody in every way, for I am not seeking my own good, hear this, but I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Who's the center point of Paul's life? Was it Paul? No, it was Jesus. And he did it for the glory of God because he wasn't seeking his own good, but he was seeking the good of the many so that they could be saved. So as we live out our life, are we choosing to use our freedoms in Christ to accomplish the same purpose Paul did? It's a good question for us. How do we use our freedoms? Are they for our own indulgence or, or are they to win others for Christ? I read a book, or I'm in the process of reading a book by Brent Crow. It's titled Chasing Elephants, Wrestling with the Gray Areas of Life. And he states the following. As living sacrifices, we should seek to capture each moment in life to the glory of God as if that were the last opportunity we'd have to do so. After reading 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, which we just read, we should ask, do I capture the moments of life? I've heard it said there are only two days in life that matter, this day and that day. This day is the day that is presently at hand. That day would be the day we stand before the Lord and give an account of our lives. Two days that matter. Today, am I capturing the moment for today? 
so that when that day comes, which is the moment that I stand before God in judgment, that God's going to say, Mike, well done. Or put your name in there. Well done. I'm proud of you. We won't hear that from him, though, unless we take this day seriously. Unless we take this day for what it means. That's the urgency of the hour. That's what Jesus was trying to say. The urgency of doing for today. What needs to be done today, because the devil's going to say, don't worry about today, you can do it tomorrow. Tomorrow doesn't come. This day is the moment. So that that day becomes significant. Brent goes on to say in his book, while you can offend someone without meaning to, the majority of the time we offend others because of a self-centered attitude. Wow. That lines up with verse 32 we just read in 1 Corinthians. Let's go back to that. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 32. It says, Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God. See, it's in the act of abusing our spiritual freedom that I may have that would cause a younger or a weaker Christian to stumble. What, it, what that means is I put myself back at the center point. I've removed the Jesus and I put Mike back because I have freedoms I can exercise and I'm going to. I don't care who it hurts. You know what that's called? Sin. Because I've taken Jesus out of my center point. I've put an idol. I've put an idol back in my life called Mike. I'm the center point. I'm going to do as I please because it's my prerogative because it's my right. That's not what Paul says. That's not what Jesus says. He says, put Christ as the center point. Don't allow any, me to stumble for any, let me be a stumbling block for anyone for the glory of God so that others may be saved. And then he goes on to say, Paul was addressing, this is uh, Brent Crow speaking again, Paul was addressing how to do all to the glory of God. God is glorified when believers are living free with a clear conscience and causing no offense, but rather building up the body of Christ to give no reason for people in our circle of influence to stumble is an act of, is a proactive, selfless act. I love that. To give no reason for the people in our circle of influence to stumble is a proactive, selfless act. Then let's read verse 33 of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Even as I try to please everybody in every way, for I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. It fits right in, doesn't it? It's not about me. It's not about my pleasures. It's not about my rights. It's about I'm living for Jesus. He's my center point so that others will be saved with me. Again, we've said it before. Another question that's going to come to you on that day is what did you do with my son? Did you lead people to him? or away from him. How did you lead people? You're a leader. Whether you know it or not, you're a leader. You became, you became Jesus and uh, filled you with his love. He forgave you of your sins. That made you a leader because we're to lead people to Christ. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, 19-23, he says, Though I am free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, 
But I did it so as to win those under the law. To win those. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law. Though I am not free from the God's law, but I'm under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. If you get confused here in this passage, understand what Paul's saying. His whole strategy is to win for Christ. Read that a couple times if you have to, but his whole strategy is I'm not going to do anything on my own right for my own good other than to win people for Christ. That was his mission, and that is, I, that is your mission today. That is my mission today. I do all things in my life to bring glory to God so that I can win others for Christ. Verse 22, to the weak I became weak, to win the weak. I have become all things to all men so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. Wow, I tell you, I can't wait to talk to Paul. I can't wait to spend some time with him. He's going to be an amazing man to talk to. The truths that the Lord revealed to him and his boldness for declaring the truth. See, that wasn't popular in that day society any more than it's popular today. We talked about it again in Sunday school. We're not any different than the people were 2,000 years ago. The same deceptions, the same issues are in our lives today. But thank God the disciples and the apostles were strong enough and be bold enough to stand up and speak the truth so that we have it today. And that's all we're being asked to do is obey the truth. So as we conclude this morning, Jackie, if you'd come, I have some questions for us to consider in light of our life being free to worship God in spirit and truth and, and, and also in our living to win, to win others for Christ. Can you honestly look at your life today as being a good example for others to follow? Wow. Think of that one. Would you be willing to be like Paul where he says, that Paul said imitate me follow me as I follow Christ can you say that in your life can I say that in my life do I want people to live the way I live and still be accountable to God with that statement he calls those within his influence to imitate him as he leads them to Christ responsible freedom can be imitated and must be consistent with Christ Paul says it in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 Verses 14 and 16. I'm not writing this to shame you, but to warn you, as my dear children, even though I have 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do, know, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. Wow, what a statement. I urge you to imitate me. Man, what a man of, of spiritual boldness. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, Paul says again, Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Now understand that the only way he can say that is at first he's following the example of Christ. He's following the example of Christ. And then he says, Follow my example as I follow Christ. John Calvin commented on this verse, and he pointed out two things. He says, first, that Paul describes nothing to others that he had not first practiced himself. Paul wasn't saying, do as I say, don't do as I do. He's saying, do as I do. Follow me as I do. Secondly, that he directs himself and others to Christ as the only pattern of right acting. Christ is the only pattern 
of right acting. So when the Lord gives us a clear word, why do we argue it? Why do we fight against it? So let me ask you this morning as the last couple questions. Can others imitate me in all areas of my life? And in doing so, will they mirror Christ? Is my life bringing glory to God in everything I do? Or are there areas that I'm trying to hide from God? And when I examine my life, can I truly worship God in spirit and in truth, as we talked about at the very beginning of this sermon? Or are there areas that truth is suppressed due to some hidden areas of sin in my life? We cannot hide from God. And He's not there to hurt us. He's there to love us. He's there to forgive us as we call out to Him. This is a good time right now this morning as you would just close your eyes and just ask the Lord, Lord, reveal areas in my life this morning. If there is anything in my life, Lord, that I cannot honestly stand before you, please reveal that to me now while I have the chance. Jesus is urgently saying, while you have the chance, call out to me so that I can help you. Call out to me while I can help you. For those that are Christians in this place today, that are professing to be a Christian today, where is your example to others? Are you calling a life in your life? Are you being like Paul to say, follow me as I follow Christ? Can people really imitate your life? That's a big challenge. But you know, they can if we have Christ in our hearts and our lives. We follow him, we seek him with all of our heart. Amen. If there's anyone here this morning that just wants to say, I need Jesus. I need to follow Jesus. I need him in my life today. He's, he's convicted me of my heart this morning that there's some areas in my life that I must get cleared up. If that's you this morning, would you just raise your hand? If you need Jesus in your life for the first time or the 10,000th time, just raise your hand. Let the Lord know. Amen. Just let him know. He loves you. He only wants to help you. He only wants to redeem you. He wants to put himself at the center point of your life. Amen. For those that are walking with the Lord today, I challenge you. Are you accomplishing the commission that the Lord's given you? If you want to do that better, would you raise your hand? If you want to do that better, I see those hands. If you want to live, uns- if you want to live sold out, if, you want- if you're saying, Lord, help me in my areas. Help me in those areas that I know that I have to do better in. We all can do better. My hands are up. Believe me, my hands are up. This is something we all can do better, folks. And it's only because we're, putting the, we're keeping Jesus at the center point of our life. And when we do that, we are then accomplishing the commission that he's given us. So that on that day, he's saying, you took care of this day properly. What a blessing. What a promise. What a great day that's going to be when we can stand there before him and he says, well done, thou good and faithful. Enter into your, into your Father's goodness. Amen. Father, we love you, Jesus. Well, we really do. And we come, Lord, we bring these words of instruction to our hearts. Lord, and I pray that they bring freedom to us. Lord, the enemy wants to bring condemnation, but your word brings freedom. It brings deliverance. It brings redemption. 
So, Lord, as those here this morning that need redemption, as we all do, Father, we just receive that in Jesus' name. We call that out, Father, that you would redeem us this morning. You would make us holy and righteous, Lord, to live before you, Father, in freedom and in joy and in mercy and in grace. And for all of us, Lord, that are Christians here, Lord, as we go into our circle of influence this week, Lord, help us to put you clearly at the center point of our life, that we would revolve around you and nothing else. And as we revolve around you, that we would be evident to others that there's something different in our life because that difference is you. That people would say, I want that. Can you tell me what that is? Can you share with me what that is? What an opportunity, Father. Go with us today, Father. Go with us today with confidence, understanding, grace, and mercy. In Jesus' name. Amen.